Today, we're going to be continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. Now, um, today we're going to be continuing reading chapter 6. Chapter 6 um, is 71 verses, so needless to say, we, you know, we've been in here the past couple of weeks, and we will um, be in this same chapter for a few more weeks. Now, um, I had every intention initially when I started to prepare myself for this sermon to read a, 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 and go through a good chunk of, of verses, but in the Lord's providence, um, and as I was studying, I um, quickly narrowed the, the sermon today to just a few verses. But I think with these few verses, it's something that, especially if you're a member of, of this church, we are, you know, aware of and we, we you know, know, but certainly something to where I, I think it's, it's worth us truly just considering and also just applying. So, um, you know, with that being said, I guess, you know, first things first, let's go to the Lord our God in, in prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this time that we get to spend now in your word, studying it, reading it, me um, preaching it, God. And I pray, God, that this may be a great time of edification. Lord, I, I ask that you may be with me, Lord, I, um, as I stand behind your pulpit. Um, I, I, you know, it's a, a humbling um, um, thing, quite frankly, to to be preaching your, your truth, knowing that you call for me, Lord, to be faithful in, in this. So, God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth only be that which is in accordance with your word, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that um, you may humble me as I as I preach, but then also to God that you may grant to everyone here that is listening, you know, eyes and ears to, 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 um, to, to see and hear um, what um, your word teaches and a heart to receive it, O oh God. So let us not be um, um, stubborn or, or hard-hearted to the truth, Lord, but rather, God, let us with humility embrace the truth, even if it's hard truth, even if it's um, um, a truth that is not popular with, um, with the culture or with our own sentiments, Lord, but humble us, Lord, to embrace the truth as we see it in your word. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. So, you know, the, the, the verses that we're going to be looking at today is um, John chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 44 through 46. And, you know, this section is seen by some as controversial because it goes against the common idea that we took the initiative in coming to Christ. You know, we live in an age that magnifies the self. And, you know, this passage does not do that. Rather, it, it does humble us. It reminds us that God had to act because we are incapable of acting. While the theme, the overarching theme of this book is the necessity for us to believe in the Son in order to have eternal life, this section, similar to the account that we read in John chapter 3 when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus, it reminds us how we even believe in the first place. You know, we're not even halfway through this gospel, and we've already seen countless examples 
of unbelief by the Jews. As I indicated in my last sermon, you know, no amount of signs or miracles were going to convince them of the true identity of the Messiah. There was an unwillingness, an unwillingness to believe in Jesus Christ that was keeping them from possessing eternal life. Their minds was so carnally focused, so fleshly focused that they could not grasp the spiritual nature of the things that Jesus was saying to them. As a result, they remained stubbornly blind and ignorant to the teachings of Jesus. Now, that blindness led to frustration and eventually, as we will see in future sermons in this chapter, desertion by many of them. They could not handle the truth that Jesus was saying, it was not palatable to them. They did not like it. It did not fit what they wanted to believe. So they abandoned Jesus. Now, for those who did not abandon Christ, why? Why was that? Was it because they were just smarter than the rest of everyone else? Was it because that they were able to connect the dots better than everyone else? Was it some ability in them or some unique trait in them that led them to believe in Jesus? Or was it something, or, or should I say someone else, who intervened? Well, that's what we see in this passage. So with that being said, let's go ahead and let's read from John chapter 6, and let's read from verses 44 through 46. So we read this. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be all and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except the one who is from God. He has seen the father. Now, as we have seen reading through this chapter and the previous chapters, the unbelieving Jews were a pretty stubborn bunch. As I already indicated, no amount of miracles or signs were going to convince them of who Jesus was. No matter what Jesus did or said, they were not being moved to believe in him. Now, earlier in his discourse, Jesus told the crowd that all that the father gave to him will come to him. So even though there were many who were refusing to believe, those that were chosen by God the Father were going to come to Jesus. And in this passage, we see how it is that those who were given by the Father comes to him. Jesus tells them that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Father draws those that he has given to the Son. So although Jesus was in the midst of a multitude of stubborn-hearted people, those who were given to him would end up coming to him. The Father, God the Father would ensure that by drawing them to Jesus. Now, there's in looking at that verse, verse 44, there's one thing, one word that's very important to note there, and that's that word can, because can denotes ability. Jesus is literally telling them that no one is able to come to him unless the father draws them. Without the father doing something, they could do nothing except remain in unbelief. They were incapable, unable in and of themselves 
to come to Christ. That's why they're so stubborn-hearted. God had to draw them. Now, after stating this, Jesus quotes to them a passage from the prophet Isaiah to support what he was telling them. He quotes Isaiah 54, verse 13. And if you read that passage, the prophet states, I mean, we see it here in verse 44, but the kind of the full verse says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. And see what the prophet is stating here in this passage is similar to what Jesus is telling the crowd in verse 44, which is why Jesus brought this passage to their attention. God is the one who will enable you to understand. Uh, John MacArthur, in his study Bible, he notes it in this way. He, he writes this. He says that Jesus paraphrased Isaiah 54, verse 13, to support the point that if someone comes to faith and repentance to God, it is because they have been taught and hence drawn by God. The drawing and learning are just different aspects of God's sovereign direction in a person's life. Those taught by God to grasp the truth are also drawn by God, the Father, to embrace the Son. So as Dr. MacArthur stated, the drawing that we see in verse 44 and the learning that we see in verse 45 are different aspects of the same spiritual act that's taking place in the believer, effectual calling. Now, our confession of faith defines effectual calling in this way. We see this answer in the larger catechism, question 67. Um, it um, states it in this way. Effectual calling is the work of God's almighty power and grace, whereby out of his free and special love to his elect and nothing in them moving him thereunto, so nothing in the believer itself out of his love, he doth in his accepted time invite and draw them to Jesus by his word and spirit, savingly enlightening their mind. So God is the one that's opening their minds to understand, renewing and powerfully determining their wills. So yes, God is the one that's making them willing. So as they, although in themselves dead in sin, are made willing and able freely to answer his call and to accept and embrace the grace offered and conveyed therein. End quote. So it's an act of God. It's an act of God by his word and spirit. He's drawing us to him. He's enlightening our minds. He's renewing our wills. He's taking us from being stubborn hearted to now being made willing and able to embrace Jesus Christ. So when we state that God is drawing a person to Christ, what we are saying is that God is the one that's causing that person to understand and to believe the gospel. God is opening their eyes. God is the one that's convicting them of sin in their lives. God is the one that's granting them understanding of the scriptures. He is causing them to love Christ. And see, we see in this passage here that the Jews were having a difficult time with many of the things that Jesus was telling them. Jesus was telling them that he was the bread of life come down from heaven. And many of the Jews were grumbling. 
as remarks. It didn't make sense. Later on, we'll see that Jesus will tell them that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Well, that sounded like cannibalism to the men. That, 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 it doesn't register to their carnal ears. And the reason why it didn't register to their carnal ears is because it takes spiritual ears to understand. It takes the spirit of God to understand the things of God. And when you don't have the spirit of God in you to help you to understand, you will never understand the things that Christ says. The Apostle Paul writes as such in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when he says this, starting in verse 12, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Reminds me of what we just read in Isaiah 54, verse 13. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And then Paul says this, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. They're foolishness. And he cannot understand them. He's unable to understand. Why? Paul answers, because they are spiritually appraised. It takes the spirit of God to understand the things of God. And that is why a person that does not have the spirit in them, everything that they see will be foolishness, will be preposterous would not make sense. It does not matter the amount of miracles that Jesus could perform. If they do not have the Holy Spirit in them, if God does not draw them, give them the Holy Spirit, grant them understanding, it will be foolishness. I mean, think about this. I, I, I'm sure some of you probably remember Oh, maybe three, four months ago now, there was that comedian, that lady um, who during her kind of comic stint, you know, she did the shtick. She did this whole um, bit in regards to, you know, if I remember correctly, kind of being vaccinated and kind of, you know, you know, joking in regards to that, saying, oh, you know, I'm, you know, the favorite of God and stuff like that. And literally, as soon as she said that, you remember what happened? She like passed out. Now. People with spiritual eyes could look at something like that and realize and acknowledge that, you know, God, I think, intervened here. She mocked God and immediately she was struck. But carnal eyes, no. Even something as clear and obvious as that, they'll explain away. Ah, oh, that was just a coincidence. Yeah, I know she... Mocked God and then mocked the vaccine. And then next thing you know, you know, she passed out. But that was just a coincidence. Why? Because it takes spiritual eyes to truly see. Otherwise, you'll be blinded. Even if the obvious is in front of you. And the crowd that Jesus was speaking to, they did not have the spirit of God in them to understand the things that Jesus was speaking. As a result. They were confused and they were perplexed. What Jesus was telling them seemed like foolishness to them. Their inability to grasp what Jesus was saying ultimately kept them from coming to Christ. But see, 
once a person is granted understanding by God, they will come to Christ. Not might, they will. That is why Jesus states that everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes. It will happen. That is why he says that he will raise them up on the last day. Not might, he will. Because God is intervening. God is the one that's acting. The calling of God is efficacious. It works. Now, when Jesus telling the crowd that those who come to him have been taught by the Father, now, he was not implying, and this brings us to 40, verse 46, he's not implying that they have physically seen the Father as they would a human teacher, but rather he's implying itself that, again, it's through the Spirit itself. The elect will be taught by God, but the means by which they will be taught will be by the Holy Spirit, bringing them to understanding. Now, this does not obviously negate the importance of preachers, teachers to preach and teach the word. But the point is, is that, you know, we can stand up here and preach for hours on end. The Holy Spirit ultimately is the one who will help you to truly grasp and understand. Now, with, you know, with that understanding, with that context in regards to these passages here, you know, I, I think it's important to, to really apply this to us here. Because, you see, the fact that any of us here understand anything that the Bible teaches, see, it's not because we were intellectual or because we were masters in rhetoric or logical deduction or we had perfect critical reading skills. No. We understand because God caused us to understand. He opened our eyes. He gave us a new heart that was willing to embrace the truth. Paul puts it in this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I, I love how he puts it because, it, you know, how he says this is, you know, it's not one of the ways that you would, in our, with our modern churches and our modern cultures, that's big on self-esteem. This is not a very self-esteem passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But it's true. You know, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to, 20, um, 26 to 31. He writes this. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that not many of you were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. So again, he's not necessarily insulting them, but he's saying... It's not like we have a bunch of smart people over here. It's not like we have a bunch of people who are, you know, rich or privileged over here. But then he goes on and he says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and then the spies God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. That's why, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
So do you see what Paul is telling the church here? He's telling them, look, look at yourselves. Again, y'all aren't academics. None of y'all come from privileges, privileged backgrounds or anything like that. God chose what was weak in the world to shame those who are strong. God chose those who were low and despised to bring to nothing those who are not low and despised. So in other words, it was not because of us that we were brought into the family of God. It is not because there was some special trait in us that God called us. It is not because there was some inner capacity in us that God um, chose to save us. In spite of ourselves, in spite of us, God saved us. In spite of our lack of intellectual capability, God gave us knowledge. God supplies us with the ability to come to him. And he does so with people like us so that we don't boast in ourselves, but so that we may boast in him that gave us understanding. Now, obviously, I, I, you know, I can't say this with any, you know, you know, with full certainty or whatnot, but, you know, it's oftentimes, you know, we look at our culture today and, I know many people sometimes, you know, wonder, especially because we are such a celebrity driven culture. And, you know, many, you know, many times there are many Christians that wonder, man, why aren't there more, you know, you know, celebrities or famous people out here who who are Christians? Why is it that if there are people that are um, that claim to be Christian and they're famous, they're, you know. Kind of. Weird, for lack of a better for lack of a better word, and I think, and again, I can't say this with any amount of you know certainty, but I can certainly imagine that the fact that again we already idolize you know celebrities and you know these type of people whatnot, and God is so jealous for His glory that the last thing that God is going to want is for us to have another idol to look at. So then, rather than do that, what does He choose? Those who are low, those who are despised, not those who are already seen as gods in their own eyes. Again, I want to re reiterate this point. You know, if God did not open our eyes, we would indeed be blind. If God did not grant us understanding, we would be incapable of grasping the Bible, if God did not replace our hardened hearts, we would be unwilling to believe in Jesus Christ. We would be like the crowd that we're seeing in John chapter 6. Unstubborn, unwilling, despite seeing the signs, despite literally seeing Jesus feed thousands of people, we would be still stubborn. You know, people have a hard time embracing what Jesus is teaching here in John chapter 6 because, you know, to them it seems cruel. They get upset. They look at passages like we just read, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them, and it gets them upset. Rather than see it as the graciousness of God, they see it as God being arbitrary and cruel and mean. How dare God not save everyone? That's what they say, rather, rather than humbling themselves and saying, praise God that God would save anyone. 
God would have been perfectly just to have left us in our blindness and cast cast us off into hell. We earned it by violating his commandments. However, because God loved us so much, he was willing not only to provide a way for salvation, but to be the way of salvation. He loved us so much that he was willing to draw us to Christ himself. Because otherwise, we would not come to Christ. He loved us so much that he was willing to impart his Holy Spirit so that we might understand what he wrote to us. God draws us to the Son because he loves us. This isn't God being hating, being mean. This is God being loving to people who are undeserving to understand God or to be with God or to um, to have him send his son to die for us. We are undeserving of it, but God did it because God loved us. Just the other day, I was reading in the book of Genesis, the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, you know, something struck me as I was reading. I don't know for many of you, but, you know, there are many times whenever you read something and, you know, you read something over and over and over again, and there are just things that you overlook. And I admit there was there was a verse that I read that, I mean, clearly it was always there, but I just never paid it, paid it any mind. But it struck me as, as I was reading it today or yesterday, you know, as I'm sure you're familiar with in regards to the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis chapter 19, there were two angels that came to Sodom and Lot asked for them to stay in their house. And they do so, and you know, many of the men of the town came to Lot's house so that they can, to keep it PG, to you know, have their way with them. As a result, God decides to go ahead and destroy both Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the angels tell Lot to gather himself and his family and flee from the town so that they won't get caught up in the destruction that was going to happen. Now, although the sins that were taking place and Sodom and Gomorrah tormented Lot, there was still some hesitancy from him to escape. He was still hesitant. But then listen to what happens in in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 19. So we read this, but Lot hesitated. And then listen to this. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hand of his daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him out of the city. So out of compassion, God caused the angels to grab Lot, to seize Lot and bring him out of the city. God loved Lot so much that he forcibly brought him out of danger. See, if Lot was just left to himself, he would not have escaped. He would have stayed to his destruction. But out of compassion for Lot, God said, nope, I am bringing you out. And he seized him, drug him out. God had to intervene, otherwise Lot would have been destroyed. Likewise, for us, God loved us so much that he himself intervenes in our salvation. 
It is out of compassion for us that God draws us. It is out of compassion for us that God replaces our stony heart, our hard-hearted heart, our stubborn heart, and gives us a fleshy heart, a heart to receive and embrace him. It is out of compassion for us that God gives us understanding of his word that leads to salvation. And just to kind of bolster this point here, here's just a couple of passages in some of the epistles that Paul wrote. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in the end of verse 4 and going into verse 5, we read this. In love, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So see that doctrine of predestination that many people hate to read about or hear about because it seems so mean. Paul says, in love, God predestined us. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. So see, because God was merciful, because he was rich in mercy, even though we were dead in our sins, God made us alive. He to put it another way, caused regeneration. He caused us to be born again. And then we see in Titus 3, starting in verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves. So now Paul is talking about what we were. So we were once also foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life, in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Out of mercy, God renewed us. God regenerated us. All of these passages and many, many more that I could read are teaching us something that we cannot forget, especially as we approach those dreaded Calvinistic verses. These verses are teaching us that because God loves us, he saved us. Because God loves us, he drew us to Christ. The doctrine of effectual calling and the passages that clearly teach this doctrine ought not to cause us to think less of God or to become upset with him. Rather, they ought to cause us to praise him more. I mean, again, we're just in chapter six of John chapter uh, of the gospel of John. And how many times have we seen the, the signs and the miracles that Jesus is performing that so plainly demonstrate the fact that he is the Messiah. And then yet they can't see, they can't understand. It's because they don't have the spirit in them. 
But then God, out of his compassion, out of his mercy, chose to give some that insight. And if that is, you praise God. Because make no mistake about it, you would be just as blind as them if it wasn't for the intervention of God, if it wasn't for God coming in and drawing you himself, seizing you out of destruction. You know, because of what this passage teaches, you know, it ought to humble us. But I admit that many times when people get this understanding of God drawing us, of that doctrine of effectual calling, the doctrine of election, limited atonement, all of these um, teachings, I don't deny that there are some who look at passages such as this and walk around with a sense of arrogance, thinking to themselves, thank God I'm not like those people over there. I mean, I'm elect. God drew me and not them. Now, this is not the mentality that you ought to have if you truly understand your state, if you truly understand who you were prior to Christ, if you truly understand your state prior to God's intervention, prior to your conversion, the thought that you ought to be having is, how could God save a wretch like me? And not thank God I am not a wretch like them, it's prideful. You know, Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, in chapter 11, he writes this. Now, this passage, uh, this section here, this comes after Paul spends the bulk of this letter talking about salvation, talking about how God saves, talking about the fact of the Gentiles being part of the family of God, talking about how not all of Israel is Israel. So he writes all of this, and then he writes this, almost anticipating maybe a bit of arrogance that may come about in understanding what God has done. He writes this, starting in verse 17 of Romans 11. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, talking about the Gentiles here, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you, the root being Christ. You will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in so basically you might want come around and saying well you know god cast these people out so that i can be part of his family again you can see that pride that arrogance that's there and paul goes on to say quite right they were broken off for their unbelief but you stand by your faith and then he says this do not be conceited but fear for if God did not spare the natural branches, he would not spare you either. Behold the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. 
if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now, in saying this, he's not, this is not, you know, a, a, a text that's talking about, you know, being able to lose your salvation or anything like that. No, because remember, he's talking to, you know, a, a visible church body, which consists of both elect and non-elect believers and just professors, but not possessors of the faith itself. So he's speaking in this way to combat the, the conceitedness that may come when a person understands the deep mysteries of salvation itself. So likewise, for us, understanding the fact that God draws us to him, that God has specially chosen us and adopted us into his family. Don't be conceited about it. Don't be arrogant about it. Rejoice. See, when we come to an understanding that God chose us, drew us, saved us from our sins, there is an overwhelming joy that we feel. We, we feel special and we feel a gratitude. And I'm not denying that reality. I'm not saying that we don't feel that way. We should feel special. We should feel gratitude. However, that understanding that God has especially chosen us, if not guarded, this is the point that I want to make, if not guarded, could lead to pride and presumption. It could lead to someone feeling a sense of superiority over those not chosen. The Pharisee in Luke 18 certainly felt that way. You remember the prayer that he had? God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector over here or this sinner over here. I tithe of everything I get. It's that arrogance. Many of the Israelites in the Old Testament felt that way. Matter of fact, if you read the Old Testament, one of the things, especially as you know, um, God start, you know, starts to warn them about impending destruction because of their sin, one of the things that you see throughout, especially if you read the book of Jeremiah, where the prophet Jeremiah is warning them that, hey, there is going to be destruction because of sin that's taking place. Then you have these false prophets that come in and say, well, no, that's not going to happen. Remember, we're God's people. God isn't going to harm us. God isn't going to destroy us. So again, that pride, that arrogance, because they were the supposed children. That keeps them from submitting to God. So we can't think or feel in that way. So then what I just saw read in, um, in Romans 11, that passage by Paul is so important to consider so that we don't get this type of mindset. Again, we should feel humble, special and overjoyed. In regards to all of this, but most importantly, we ought to be humbled. We must not become prideful or arrogant. If we become prideful and arrogant and learning these deep truths that are true, I'm not going to deny this doctrine. But if we become prideful or arrogant and coming to an understanding of it, you know what? Truth be told, that's probably a telltale sign that you aren't chosen by God. Yeah, you may know about the doctrine of election. You may know about effectual calling. But then if that is your attitude, if that is your response, you may not be one of God's chosen. And that will make itself clear in due time. 
Now, the doctrine, bringing all of this to a close, you know, the doctrine of effectual calling that is articulated in these three verses that we read today is no doubt a difficult doctrine to embrace and accept. I completely understand that reality. You know, the fact that God is the one that is drawing some and not drawing others can be difficult to fully embrace. But see, we can't deny that this doctrine is reality. We can't ignore the scriptures. No one has the ability to come to Jesus apart from God, acting apart from him, drawing. All of us are dead in our sins. Like Lot, we need for God to step in and intervene for us. Otherwise, we'll die, we'll perish. Out of love for us, God draws us to Christ. It was because God was so rich in mercy that he established and executed the way by which we will be saved. It was because God is so kind that he imparts his spirit in us so that we may understand the scriptures unto salvation. And as we continue on with the rest of this gospel, we may be tempted to look at the unbelieving Jews and shake our heads at them because they're so stubborn, because we're going to be reading much more in regards to their stubbornness. We may be tempted to say, how in the world can they be so blind for, to something that's right in front of them? If you're tempted to think that way, just remember, you too would have been blinded to the truth. If it wasn't for God, you too would have not understood the teachings of Jesus. If it wasn't for God, you too would have refused to believe in Jesus Christ if it wasn't for God. So don't get puffed up with pride in the knowledge of this doctrine, but rather give thanks to God for his mercy in your life and drawing you to God and drawing you to Christ. Let us now go to the Lord our God in prayer.